Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're going to tackle the book of Revelation. And I need to give a few disclaimers before we start the book of Revelation. Um, I can't cover everything there is to cover in the book of Revelation. We're going to try to do it two weeks in a row because next week's our last week. Second disclaimer. There are multiple interpretations of the book of Revelation from very fine biblical evangelical leaders. And so I um, am coming to this with a bias of how I interpret Revelation, so you may disagree with me tonight, and that's perfectly fine. I will just say this. Any person who is dogmatic on end times events that says this is the way it's going to be and every other view is wrong has not fully read Revelation or other passages on the end times because there's still a lot of mystery. So this is an area where we can agree to disagree, okay? There are four things that we have to agree upon. This is not in your notes, but I'll I'll just tell you the four things that you have to agree upon. Number one, Jesus is coming back literally, physically, bodily. Number two, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Number three, there's going to be a judgment. And number four, there's going to be heaven and hell. Now, those four things we got to agree upon. Now, how they happen, when they happen, the timing, the sequence, that's up for debate. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to try to be as unbiased as I can, but I, I'm going to just take us through some of these issues. But the, the first thing I want to talk about are some interpretive issues. Um, there are three ways to interpret the book of Revelation historically. Three major views, three major approaches, Okay. The first approach is what we call the idealistic approach. This is the approach we're not going to take in this class. This is the liberal view that basically says these are kind of good principles, but we don't take them literally. Uh, everything's ultimately symbolic, and this is just more about how God deals with the world. Okay? It's, it's the more liberal view of, of the book of Revelation. The other approach, which is very, very popular... It's not the approach I take, but it's the most popular approach. It's the left-behind book approach. It's the majority of televangelist approach. It's when you go to the Christian bookstore, it's the main approach. So I'm already putting myself out there that I'm not in the mainstream. Um, It's the futuristic approach. And what this says is chapters 1 through 3, the seven churches in Asia Minor, that's historical. But when you get to chapter 4, everything jumps to the future. So from chapter 4 on, that's totally a future time. We're not in that time right now. That's a time in the future, strictly. Chapters 1 through 3, that was history. Chapters 4 through the end of Revelation, that's ultimately the future. The view that I'm arguing for is what we call the contemporary historical view. What this view says is that the symbolism grows out of events in John's day that the original readers would understand. Most of Revelation deals with events that are occurring now and have been occurring since Jesus Christ went back to heaven. Okay, the contemporary. There's also a historical take on it that this was happening in the original church that read this. And there's also a futuristic approach. Okay, so it's not strictly past. It's not strictly future. It's, it's a both and. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so how to read the book of Revelation? Again, this is up for debate. You will probably disagree with me on that and on this, and that's okay. There are, there are two ways to look at it. Do we read the book of Revelation in linear fashion? And what do I mean by linear is that point one leads to point two, leads to point three, leads to point four. It's linear. It's sequential. It's one event after the other in a sequence. Is that the way you read the book of Revelation? Or... Does the apocalyptic literature lend itself to reading it like this, like a cycle? Things are repeated. Things are cyclical. I'm going to argue that the book of Revelation is meant to be read cyclical. Because technically when you get to the end of chapter 6, the book is done. Chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6 is the great, is the final judgment. So why do we have all these chapters again? Do we have a different judgment or is it repeating the same event from a different vantage point? Okay? So I'm arguing, and you can disagree with me, but I'm arguing for a cyclical type of way of looking at the book of, of Revelation because of the apocalyptic nature of the literature itself. So here's a sound interpretation. Okay? This is very, very crucial in any book that you read in the Bible, but especially Revelation. The book was intended for believers in John's day and age. It cannot mean something different to us than it meant to them. The original, the meaning of the original readers must be determined first. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not applications that apply to us, but if the, if the original readers come up with something different than what we come up with, then we've bypassed what the original intention was. Who was the original audience? a group of Christians in Asia Minor around 95 A.D. And if we come up with a different interpretation than what they came up with, then we're probably off base, okay? Now, there are some things that we've seen progress throughout history that would give us a wider view of interpretation, but some people will say, well, you know, the locusts in Revelation represent Huey helicopters, Apache helicopters, and 666 is a barcode, would the original audience know what a barcode was? Would the original audience know what a helicopter was? Okay. They won't know what those things are. So some people say all these things are things in the future that John saw that he couldn't quite explain, but they're going to be things in the future. Maybe, but a starting point is to say, did the original audience understand it that way? Or are these images something that would be very familiar to them from the Old Testament? Okay, And we'll get to that in just a moment. What is the purpose of the book? Oftentimes, people are scared to touch Revelation because it's freaky. You got beasts, and you got 666, and you got dragons, and you've got all this weird imagery. What's ultimately the purpose of the book? Well, here's the purpose of the book it's to comfort a persecuted church in their struggle against the forces of evil by showing them a majestic view of Christ and His victory. It's not necessarily to give us a, a timeline of the future, although it does. The main purpose of the book is to comfort this struggling church that's under persecution to know that Christ reigns and Christ wins. This is another thing that we're going to camp out on tonight. I don't know if you knew this, but there are more scenes of worship in the book of Revelation than in any other New Testament book. There's more scenes of worship. Oftentimes when we think of the book of Revelation, we think, well, it's all end times prophecies. 
Yes, that's there, but there's more scenes of worship than in any other book. All right, so that's the purpose, to, to comfort a church by showing them a majestic view of Christ, to worship Jesus as the Lamb on the throne. Now, let's talk about symbolism in Revelation. There's a type of literature that Revelation is. It's, we, we haven't dealt with it yet. It's called apocalyptic literature. It was a special type of literature that is, was around during that time. And what I want you to think about in apocalyptic literature is moving pictures. I want you to think movie. I was a film and video major in college. And you guys know this intuitively whether you were a video major or not. When you watch a movie, is there just one camera angle throughout the whole movie that shows? That would be boring, wouldn't it? What do they do? Have you ever been on a movie set? They may have about 20 different cameras all set up all around, and they may take about 15 different angles, but what are they showing? The same event. Revelation will show the same event, but they may show it from the perspective of heaven, and they may show it from this perspective of earth. John is very fond of showing you the same scene right next to each other, but one is from the viewpoint of heaven, the other is from the viewpoint of earth. Now, if you take it linearly, you may think these are two separate events that are happening one after another. What I believe John is doing is showing you the same event, but from a different perspective. Okay? That'll come into play. I'll point those out when we come across some of those. Now, turn to Revelation 1. 1. The very first sentence of the book tells you how to read Revelation. Okay? So, we need to let... This is one thing we'll say. We need to let John interpret John. Okay, let John speak for himself. Don't try to do something that John didn't do himself. So let's read Revelation 1.1. And I want to hear what different people have in there. I think the King James probably translates it the best. But let's look and see what um, Revelation 1.1 says. The revelation or apocalypse, it's the Greek word apocalypse, it's the, the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. He made it known. The ESV says he made it known. Anybody have King James? What does King James say? He sent his, he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant. Okay, he sent and he signified it. Anybody else have something different? The word there to be made known... The Greek word there means to communicate by symbols. Okay? To make known, I guess it's on the screen, <laughs> to communicate by symbols, to signify by symbols. So how is John telling us from the very beginning how to understand Revelation? Symbolically. Now, do we take Revelation literally? Yes, unless it tells us to take it symbolically. (laughs) Do we take it literally? Yes. But when it says Jesus had a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and he had flaming eyes, and he had burnishing brandished feet, and he had white hair, are we supposed to take a picture and draw that as what Jesus looks like, or is that a symbol of something different? It's a symbol. So do we take that literalistically as far as that's what Jesus looks like or do we take it symbolically as what those things are supposed to signify? John tells us from the very beginning we are to take Revelation symbolically. Okay, It's meant to be read as a symbol. 
And especially, guys, these symbols are to be taken from what we see in the Old Testament. The key, key, key to Revelation. It will help you immensely. The Old Testament is the interpretive grid for understanding the symbols in Revelation. Not modern occurrences or things like helicopters or atomic bombs or barcode chips. When there's a reference to something symbolically, you almost always want to go back and say, what symbol do we see here that was talked about in the Old Testament? So, for example, let's talk about a locust. You think about the locust. What was the locust a symbol of in the Old Testament? Hey, guys. Destruction. Fast, swift destruction. So when there's a locust in Revelation, what do you think it's going to symbolize? Fast, swift destruction. Is it necessarily by helicopters with atomic bombs? We don't know, but would the original audience know that? Or is John basically making a symbolic statement saying, there's going to come a time where there's going to be swift, fast destruction because some of these demons that he sends out later on, they look like locusts with teeth and this wild hair. So it could be symbolic of demonic oppression, not necessarily helicopters, okay? All right. I don't know why I keep sticking on helicopters, but it's one of those Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth things. Okay, let's talk about the date and the setting. Um, John is on the island of Patmos. He's living on a penal colony, modern-day Turkey. Um, I don't know if this is in your notes, it's around the time that Roman Emperor Domitian was the emperor. Roman Emperor Domitian made a mandate in the Roman Empire. Here's what he said. Once a year, every citizen of the Roman Empire must come to the temple, dip a piece of incense on the altar, and publicly proclaim, Caesar is Lord and God. Would that bother you if you're a Christian? Who is Lord and God? Jesus. So from the very beginning, the the whole issue of Revelation is that these Christians are living under the iron fist of Rome that's basically saying to them, Caesar is Lord and God, not Jesus. So you need to owe allegiance to Caesar. And so that's what's going on. And so why is John on the island of Patmos? We'll find out in just a few moments. Okay, let's talk about the outline of the book. Do we have the outline of the book on there? Well, there's seven is a key number in Revelation. So the book has seven parts. And I don't think we're going to get through all of them tonight. We may not get through all of them next week. But there are seven major sections in the book of Revelation. But here's another other introductory issue. This book talks about the way that the devil attacks the church. There are four main ways that Satan attacks the church. He attacked the seven churches in Asia Minor... All throughout history, he's attacked these churches. Today, these churches. Now, you guys tell me if this is true. May not in every case, in every situation, but somewhere in the world today, a true gospel-centered church is going to be attacked with one of these four attacks. Here's the first one. Persecution. In order to influence believers to give up or renounce their faith. Not so much in America, but are there churches around the world where the devil's attacking the church through persecution? You betcha. Okay, that's really what was going on here in the early church. In, 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 in Ephesus and Laodicea and places like that in Asia Minor. The other thing that Satan tries to attack a church is through materialism and complacency that influences believers to trust in their own resources instead of God's. When we talk about the seven churches, one of the seven churches, that was their fault. Laodicea, 
you say that you're rich and you're powerful and you're in this great city and Jesus says you're poor, naked, and blind. You've, got, you've given into materialism. You've given into complacency. The other attack, and this is some of the other seven churches, through sexual immorality and issues of holiness that influence the church to look just like the culture around them. Is that going on today? Persecution, materialism, sexual morality, and here's the last one, false doctrine. Influence believers to believe lies and compromise the gospel. You can find one of those four temptations, attacks, in every one of the seven churches in Asia Minor that, that John, or actually Jesus, addresses. So we've got to ask, what type of animal is Revelation? What's the genre of this book? What is it? Well, this has the, the wonderful description of having three. It is an apocalypse. Okay? The very first word in the Greek text is apocalypsis, which means an uncovering, an unveiling. John was able to see something that nobody else saw. What was John able to see? Visions of heaven, visions of the end. It's, it's an unveiling of things that were communicated through a divine messenger. Okay, that's what an apocalypse is. A vision or a scene communicated through an angel or a divine messenger. So it's an apocalypse, but it's also prophetic. Does this talk about the future? Yes. We have the new heavens and the new earth. We have the great white throne judgment. We have the lake of fire. Look at, um, look at verse uh, 3, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I'm going to give you a little challenge, a very interesting challenge. John here says, blessed are those who read aloud. Read the book of Revelation in one setting aloud and see how it impacts you. We did this um, earlier in a small group that I'm in, and one of the persons that read it said after it was over, she was just weeping because it was so powerful to read the book of Revelation out loud in one sitting to see it from beginning to end. Okay, so it's a prophecy. So it's an apocalypse. It's an unveiling of, of weird things, visions. It's an apocalypse. or It's a prophetic uh, of the future, but it's also a, la- a letter. Who's it written to? Seven churches in Asia Minor. So it's occasional in nature in the sense that it's, it's, it's written to specific groups of churches in, in a specific time place that dealt with specific issues. And so it's a specific letter. But it's also a letter that's meant to be circulated to us today. So it's a weird animal. It's apocalypse, it's a prophecy, it's a letter. And I'll say this again. The big interpretive issue that we must hold fast to, you will get tripped up if you don't hold to this, the revelation cannot mean something different to us than what it meant to the original readers. So we've got to figure out what it meant to them first. And once we find out what it meant to them first, then we can make application. That, that goes for any type of Bible study. What do we often want to do? We often want to jump to, what does this mean for us today? Wrong, wrong process. That's the last thing you do in the process. What's the first thing you do in the process? What did it mean to the people that originally received it? And once we determine what it meant to them and unpack what it meant to them, then we can kind of understand what it means to us. But don't bypass that, that, that process in Bible study or you're going to get some weird interpretations. That's where, that's where people have weird interpretations. And, and let me just say something for just a moment. In Revelation, I think it's the only book that I will give you permission to say, well, that's not my interpretation. I'll give you permission to say that. In other books, I think there's only one interpretation. There's different applications, but I think there's only one interpretation. 
Now, I'm not being saying like mine's the only one, but I think the Bible has one specific meaning, but there's different applications. Does that, does that make sense? In Revelation, I think we have a little bit more freedom to say, uh, we're not quite sure what that means. So your interpretation is good as, as long as it's, it's close to what we think it means. So let's look at part one. Part one of Revelation is Christ in the midst of his church. This is chapters one through, through, through basically, well, be one through three. <laughs> chapters one through three. Christ in the midst of his church. And so what I want us to do, and again, guys, we don't have time to look at every single passage of Scripture. I wish we did. This is an overview of Revelation. But I'm going to hit some hot buttons because there's some issues like, are we going to go through the Great Tribulation? Are we going to go through the Great Tribulation? What's the Great Tribulation? Well, let's read Revelation 1.9 and find out how John answers that question. Sorry, I didn't mean to get so excited, but people are like, what, Great Tribulation, are we going to get raptured out of the Great Tribulation? Go through mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib, what is rapture, tribulation? Mm. All right, here we go. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. I thought there was going to become a time when we are going to go through the tribulation. What does John say right from the beginning? I'm in the tribulation with you, and it's happening right now. And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, just because John says, I'm in the middle of tribulation, doesn't mean there's not going to be a time of a greater tribulation. But let's just say this. Has there been tribulation in the world ever since the beginning? Yes. And it's the height of naivety and arrogance for us in America to say, we're going to escape the great tribulation when there's people in Afghanistan there's people in um, Sudan that are going through what? They would say, we're in the Great Tribulation right now. Okay? Now, with that being said, and we'll talk about this next week, I do believe there will come a time of heightened or increased persecution and tribulation right before Jesus comes back. But we need to remember that nowhere in the Bible does it promise that we can ever escape tribulation. John, the author of this, says it. What does he say? We are in it. I am in it. Okay, so there's three experiences that every believer goes through. What does he say here? There's three things. I, John, your partner and brother in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So three things that all of us go through in all time periods, regardless of whether it's the future, whether it's right now. The first one is that we all go through tribulations. Anybody here not gone through a tribulation? Anybody here not gone through a trial? I would say if you're three months old, you count because you haven't lived long enough. But nobody in here, unless your birth was difficult. I mean, even then. What did Jesus say in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the same word that John uses there. We're going to have tribulation in this world. What does Acts 14, 21 through 22 say? When they had preached the gospel to that city... And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom of God? Through how many? Many tribulations. Okay, so every believer is experiencing tribulation. But there's also the kingdom. We are a partner with John in the kingdom. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom? It's a big motif in the Bible. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. We are his people. We are protected. 
We are his, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We are part of God's family. We are his people. Okay? But also, we share in patient endurance or perseverance. What does he say there? Patient endurance. That is one of the key themes of the book of Revelation. To him who overcomes at the end of every seven churches, to the overcomer, to the one who endures to the end, to the one who perseveres to the end. It's not to the one that starts well, it's to the one that perseveres to the end. This calls for endurance on part of the saints. Endure, 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 preserve, 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 persevere, 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 hang with it. Little struggling church that iron hand of Rome is breathing down your neck and persecuting you. Stick with it because Christ is on his throne. And you don't serve Rome, you serve Jesus. Now, where is John? He is on the island called Patmos. Patmos was 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's a 10-mile by 6-mile wide volcanic rocky wasteland that rises 800 feet above sea level. It was the Alcatraz of its day. Now, was John there to plant a church? Was John there to do missionary work? It's a penal colony, meaning he's there to do hard labor because he was arrested and put in prison. Now, was he put in prison for a crime like stealing or murder? What does he say there? What does the text say? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is he on the prison colony? On account of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. He's there because he preached Jesus. Thrown in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, let's read verses 12 through 16 and let's just get blown away by the first thing that John sees. Okay? Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like, I want you to pay attention to the word like, it's all through Revelation, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What in the world is this? Who is this? It's Jesus. But does John come out and say, look, here's Jesus. What does he call him? He was like... Now, here's the thing about John. All throughout this, what is John seeing? This is apocalypse. If you're given vision into heaven, into these glorious things, are you going to be able to clearly communicate them? You're going to be like... All right, so let me give you an Artaxerdeism, okay? I was listening to Artaxerdea this past week, and he was preaching, and he said, how do you describe electricity to natives in Papua New Guinea that are still living in the Stone Age? Well, you take this little spirit force that goes through these bamboo trees and these vines come down into your house and then you can kind of capture them and then you have a miniature sun inside your hut that can stay on all the time. How do you describe electricity to people that have never seen it? John is trying to explain something to us that he's never seen. That's why he uses the word like. I can't quite describe it, but it's like this. So all throughout this, when he sees these things, he's going to say, it's like, it's like this. 
I really can't quite explain it, but it's like it. And what does he see? It's like the Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man? Jesus. And what's he wearing? He's wearing a golden sash, a long robe and a golden sash. When you go back to the Old Testament, who wore a long robe and a golden sash? The high priests. So Jesus is wearing the high priestly garments. Where is he at? He's in the midst of the lampstands. Now we'll find out later. What are the lampstands? The churches. So where is Jesus? He's right in the middle of the churches to give them comfort, to give them encouragement, to say, I am here in the midst of your trial and your tribulation. And later on it says, I hold the lampstands in my hand. So let's look at the sevenfold description of the Son of Man. And John loves to use the word, the, the number seven. Numbers mean things in Revelation. Let's just stop and talk about numbers, okay? So let me kind of give you guys some, some number, some things about numbers. This is not in your text or not in your notes, but I just thought we'd probably... So let's start from all right, number three. That's the number of what? The Trinity. So things come in threes. And there's like kind of a rhythm in the Revelation of threes, threes, threes. It's to kind of show it's God's number, Okay. Number four, this represents the four corners of the earth. Now, you have to ask the question, is the earth, did John not know that the earth is a globe? Are there four corners of the earth? It's basically when the number four, it represents all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples coming together from around the world. So it's a number of, of, of people groups around the world. Six is the number of man. Thus, 666 would be a counterfeit of three, the Trinity, the number of man. Seven is a number of what? Completeness, perfection, wholeness. Ten, or multiples of ten, represent basically an extended period of time. It's also kind of like seven, or completeness. And then another number is 12. What does 12 represent? It represents the people of God. You've got the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, and you've got the 12 apostles. So it's usually 12 is a number to take the Old Testament and the New Testament together to give you the people of God. So if we get time tonight, we're going to talk about the 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Okay? So 7. So Jesus is described with seven descriptions, which means what? It's the complete, perfect Christ. So how is he described? And these are all allusions to the Old Testament. White hair. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. What does white represent? Purity holiness so jesus is absolutely pure he's holy what are his eyes like his eyes were like flames of fire laser sharp eyes what does it mean that jesus's eyes are like flames of fire he can see all things his eyes penetrate they're they're eyes of judgment no one no one escapes the penetrating gaze of jesus Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What were his feet like? Burnished bronze refined in a furnace. 
So he's got like fiery bronze feet. You, you remember the old Japanese movies with Godzilla? And like he came walking through the town, everybody screaming, ah, because he's stomping on everybody. It's literally the picture of Jesus stomping on his enemies. Now, we just stop here because some of you are going to get, not some of you, hopefully none of you, there are some images of Jesus Christ being a warrior judge in Revelation. The meek and mild Jesus that came on earth and taught, that Jesus is now in heaven as the exalted king and he's going to come back in judgment. So don't be more loving than Jesus. Okay? He's going to come back and stomp on his enemies. It says right there, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Okay, what else do we see here? His feet were like burnished bronze, refined, and his voice, his voice, like what? The rushing waters. Has anybody ever been to Niagara Falls and heard? I've never been there, but I've heard it's very loud. Rushing waters, just the, the loud voice. Ezekiel 43, 2. Behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with glory. Okay, what's in his right hand? He holds what? He grips the church, the seven stars. Now, who are these seven stars? They can be messengers or pastors of the seven churches, or they can also be a metaphor for the church itself. But what did Jesus say back in John 10, 28 and 29? It's the same thing. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you secure in this Jesus? If you're a Christian, this Jesus should not scare you. This Jesus should comfort you because He's absolutely sovereign. He's pure. He's white. He's going to make things right. He's got you in the grip of His hands. If you're not a Christian, should this terrify you? And it does because... As we look at in just a few moments, what, what else? What's number six? What comes out of his mouth? A two-edged sword. We know what the Word of God is, don't we? Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then what's the last one? What was his face like? His face was like the blinding sun. In other words, can you even look at Jesus? What happens when you look at the sun? You're blinded. 1 Timothy 6.16 says this, He who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, notice what happens in verse 17. When I saw him, I went up and gave him a high five and said, Hey, Jesus, you're my homeboy. Is that what your Bible says? What does John the Apostle say? This is John the Apostle, second behind Peter. If there's anybody that was intimate with Jesus, anybody got to see things, in, you know, anybody that got to see Jesus in all of his glorified state, what does it say? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. How does everybody in the Bible, when they see the glorified Christ, respond? They fall as dead. Now, Jesus comes and puts his hand on him and, and encourages him. Now, Here's, here's the seven churches. I wish we could go into detail about every seven church, but we can't do that for the sake of time. Let me just say this. 
There's two things about these seven churches that Jesus does. And um, if you want to go back on the website, I preached on the seven churches back in 2007. So if you want to go back and listen to some of those, each church is a different sermon. But one thing, two things that Jesus does. Number one, he describes himself to each of these churches using one of those seven features that we just saw. So he's going to appear to each of the seven churches as something that we just saw, whether it's the sword coming out of his mouth or the feet of burnish, of, 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 like a furnace. And also, what he's also going to do is in each town, each church, He's going to address issues related to their geography, history, and business and culture to make the situation more specific and more emphatic. Okay. So let's just talk real quickly about these, these seven churches. I'll tell you what the big issue is in each of them. Okay. Ephesus was the church that lost that love and feeling. They lost their first love. In other words, here's the issue with Ephesus. This is a church you'd want to be in halfway. Ephesus had great light in the sense they had great theology, great doctrine. Who were the three pastors of Ephesus? Anybody know from history? Paul was your church planning pastor, Timothy, and then John. We talk about the triumvirate of awesome pastors. Do you think you'd be well discipled? If you didn't know your theology, there's something wrong. If you had those three guys as your pastors. So they had great theology, but what did they lose? Their passionate worship. They lost that worship and that love. Jesus says, you, he says, I know your works. You don't tolerate false doctrine. Your, your theology is straight as a gun barrel, but you've lost your first love. Your love has grown cold. Okay, so that was the church in Ephesus. And, and, and in five of the seven churches, Jesus has a rebuke against them. I have this against you. If you don't repent, I'm going to come in judgment to you. I'm going to come in discipline. And that's what he says to the church in Ephesus. If you don't repent, I'm going to come remove the lampstand. I'm going to come close down your church. Does Jesus have the right to close down churches? Yes. Are there a lot of churches that are functioning as churches today that Jesus has left the building? Yes. It's a sad thing. Okay, Smyrna, the second church, that was a church that had nothing against them. Jesus had nothing against them. This was the most impoverished church. They were the poorest church, and they were the most persecuted church. So they were in extreme poverty, the poorest extreme poverty church. They were persecuted. Nothing wrong with that church. Jesus says, stay in there, stick in there. I know that you're poor. I know that you're persecuted, but stick with it. I have overcome. Pergamum, the third church, this was the compromising church. This was the church where the leadership, they did not deal with sexual immorality in the congregation. They were putting up with sexual immorality, and the leaders, the elders didn't do anything about it. And also, it was the hardest place to live. It was where Satan's throne was. So this is an issue of leadership, pastoral leadership. They weren't dealing with sin. So the church just kind of was, was compromising. Okay, Thyatira, this was the seduced church. This was that prophetess named Jezebel that came in and started teaching false doctrine to where people could start um, having sex with whoever they wanted and to engage in, in worldly behavior. Here's the issue in a lot of these churches, and I'll just talk about this real briefly about the seven churches. They often had these trade guilds, and so each town had a trade guild whether it was like wool workers or pottery workers. And to be part of the trade guild, a union, you had to go to the union party and pay your union dues. What was the union due? Once a year, dip your incense into the altar and say Caesar is Lord and God. Other thing you had to do to pay your dues? Go to the trade guild orgy. Get drunk and have sex in the orgy. If you don't, you'd lose your job. You may lose your hours. You may lose your income. Now, if you're a Christian, can you do that? 
Some of these people were coming along like in Thyatira and this Jezebel lady, we don't know if that's her real name, was saying, it's not that big of a deal. We know you really don't mean it. When you put that incense in there, we know you really believe in Jesus. It's not that big of a deal. And yeah, go. You can go to the party. Just, you know, drink, drink a little wine. Don't get drunk. And if, you know, people start having orgies, just kind of act like you're having fun, but don't fully engage. It's okay. It's okay. That was what she was doing. She was seducing them to engage in worldly behavior. Okay, then you have Sardis. Sardis was the mega church happening church, the biggest church in town. They had the programs, the building, the budget. Everything looked like it was going great. But Jesus says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. They have the church that had this great reputation. Oh, man, we, we want to go to that church. They've got the building. They've got the budget. They've got the ministries. They've got the great pastor. Everything's wonderful about that church. Everybody's flocking to that church, but you peel away the, peel away the layers of the onion, and it's, Jesus says, you're dead. You're not alive. Now, Sardis was the biggest church. It was the mega church. Philadelphia, this was the other church besides Smyrna that Jesus had nothing against them. They were the smallest. They were the beloved church. He says, I know you're small. I know you're a struggling band of believers. But the one thing that you have done is you've kept your witness. You've remained faithful, even though you're small. And then the last church, Laodicea, it was the nauseating church. It was the one that Jesus wanted to vomit out of his mouth because they were neither hot nor cold. They were the richest of the churches. And Jesus says, you're blind, arrogant, and self-sufficient. Now, just talk a little bit about Laodicea. In the town of Laodicea, it was known for three things. One, banking. It was the banking center. Number two, it was the textile or fashion center where they made clothing. And number three, they had a hospital there that was very popular for this salve, this Phrygian powder you'd put on eyes to help people see. So what were the three things about their town? We are rich. We got the banks. We, got, we are the fashionista capital. We got the clothes, and we got the hospital that helps people see. And what did Jesus say? You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. So repent. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. So he makes an allusion to their town there. And he does that through all the seven churches, okay? Now, let's, let's move into part two of the book. Again, man, that was a fast... I wish we could go into every seven church, but that's just an overview. Chapters four through seven are the book with the seven seals. And in chapter four, we have a stark contrast. We get catapulted into the throne room of heaven chapters one through three it's this all the muck and mire of earth these churches are in the midst of immorality and the persecution and all this stuff and then to give kind of a reprieve heaven opens up and god says come up here john and i'm going to show you some stuff so chapter four we get to see what happens in heaven so let's spend some time in chapter four there's a key word that shows up all throughout revelation the one word that shows up more than any other word in Revelation is the word throne, which tells you what's the book of Revelation about? The sovereign king on his throne. In chapters 4 and 5, it shows up 40 times, the word throne. So what do you think takes the occupation of heaven? The throne of God. Now, chapter five or chapter 4 deals with God the Father, Chapter 5 deals with God the Son. So we're seeing two different things here. But let's look and see what happens. Okay? Let's, let's just pick up chapter 4, verse 1. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. What's the first thing he sees? A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Let me just give you two psalms that you're going to love, because I love them. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Amen. He rules over all. He's established His throne. And then those people that think that God's a puny God that can't really do anything, Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The image of a king on a throne does not resonate with us in a democratic society, does it? We've never been under a king. What, does, what, what is the ethos of America? independence. I can do what I want. I don't have to have any authority. I don't have to submit. I'm independent. I'm self-autonomous. The whole idea of me submitting to someone on a throne, what are you talking about? That's what we fought independence from England. I'm not going to have to bow down before anybody on a throne. Now, what are these churches struggling with? Who's on the throne in these churches? Caesar's on the throne. He's ruling with an iron fist over these churches, over these Christians. And John gets to see heaven and say, look, let's get some perspective here. Who's really on the throne? The Father is on the throne. So let's look at God's glory. How indescribable is, how is this indescribable glory of God recounted by John? Again, what's John going to use? Like. It was like this. It was like that. I don't really know what it is, but it's the closest thing I can think is it's like this. Now, first of all, God's glory is compared to precious stones. So let's look at this. Verse 4. And he, or verse 3, I'm sorry. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, Jasper. Not like our modern day Jasper, but more like ice, diamond, crystal. So what's emanating from the throne? This crystal-like, brilliant, shining, glory stuff. Carnelian, deep red fire. And then emerald green rainbow. So, so, I mean, we can't really draw this, but what's the first thing John sees? Brilliant, colorful, blinding light that's emanating from this throne. Okay, almost a blinding light. And when you read this passage of Scripture, you almost think that this God, and I think John's setting you up for this, this God is the almost unapproachable God. How is anybody going to get to this God? Well, the answer is you can't get to this God unless you have Jesus. Because we're going to see what you have to pass in order to get to God. Who's going to just come up to this blinding, brilliant light and just walk into God's presence? Okay, that's the first thing John sees. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign... The King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Has anybody ever seen God the Father and lived? And, and, and we dare not break the first commandment or second commandment here, because did John ever really get to see, does he ever really get to see God? Or does he see the glory of God? He doesn't describe God for us. He describes the glory of God. Moses wasn't even allowed to see the glory of God. He could see the backside glory. So you got this light emanating. Now, it's interesting because when you go and look at 
Some of these scenes in the Old Testament, when people got to see heaven, they saw the same thing. Ezekiel got to see the same thing. Ezekiel 1, 27 through 28. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of a rainbow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. What did Ezekiel see? The same thing John saw. This beautiful, glorious, emanating light coming from the throne. Now, what's the significance of the rainbow? What was the rainbow an image of? God's promise to his people that I'm going to save you through an ark and I'm never going to flood the world again. Jesus is the ark to which, through, through whom we're saved. Let's keep going. Let's look at four, four through six. All right, who's going to get past the brilliant light? Okay, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, now we get into something that's a little bit debatable. So there's two interpretations here of the 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? Let me give you interpretation number one, and I will tell you why interpretation two is the one I hold to, okay? Interpretation number one sees these as the 24 is a symbolic number, Old Testament, New Testament, of all of God's people around the throne. They see the 24 elders as a metaphor or a symbol of Christians, believers from the Old Testament and the New Testament surrounding the throne in worship. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that's not what it is. I don't have necessarily have qualms about that. But when you go into chapter 5 and when you go into chapter 7, the elders are always distinct from people. So they're holding the bowls of the saints in chapter 7 and in chapter 5, would Christians hold bowls of other Christians coming to them and taking them to the Lord? I don't know. In chapter 7, one of these elders explains to John who these people are that came out of the Great Tribulation. He's explaining a group of people that if he was part of those people, why is he explaining who these people are? So interpretation number one is it's a symbolic number of all Christians. I think a better interpretation, and again, I won't be dogmatic on this, while I'm, not, while I'm not dogmatic, I believe that these 24 elders are an exalted order of angels who serve and adore God as the heavenly counterpart to the 24 priestly Levitical orders in 1 Chronicles 24 and 25. If you go back to 1 Chronicles, there were 24 Levitical priests whose whole goal was to be in the temple, to surround the, 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 the worship, and to be the lead worshipers. So it's an exalted order of angels, okay? Now, we need to talk about angels for a moment because when we get to chapter 5, and I'll probably have to draw chapter 5 here in just a moment, you've got different orders of angelic beings. You've got angels. You've got 24 elders. And you've got the four living creatures. These are all 
different orders of supernatural beings that are non-human. Okay, so I think angels are distinct from the 20... Or 20 they, angels could be a broad order of it, but I think there's a hierarchy. The four living creatures are the highest order. Then you've got the 24 elders, and then I think you've got your regular everyday angels. And maybe you have Michael the archangel as the head of that group. We really don't know. So what are these 24 elders doing? Well, think of it this way. In essence, they're the royal entourage around the throne. Now, you may ask yourself a question, does God need an entourage? Does God need bodyguards? No. But when you're a famous person, when you walk around, who do you have around you? Attendants and bodyguards and people. Does God need them? No, but it's to heighten the idea that God is worthy of worship. And if God wants to, he can choose 24 people or 24 of these creatures around him to simply bring him praise and worship, the entourage around God. Their whole job is to magnify God. Now, what else do we see there? Thunder and lightning. Now, think about the image here that John sees. I'm seeing this brilliant light coming from the throne. I'm seeing these 24 elders with crowns, and there's lightning and there's thunder. This is an amazing scene of the throne room of God. The thunder and lightning is is a symbol from the Old Testament of the terrifying awe of God's holy power. If you go back to Exodus 19, I won't read the whole verse there, but when Moses shows up on Mount Sinai, what does Mount Sinai do? It shakes with thunder and lightning and smoke, and the people are terrified. So every time there's thunder and lightning, it means God's showing up in His holiness and in His power, and people are, are quaking. Now, what else is there? Well, how do we deal with seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God? Does that mean the Holy Spirit is a nine person of the Spirit? You've got the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Is that what He's saying there? No, seven is a symbolic number of completeness. The seven torches is an allusion back to Zechariah of the torches in the temple that were flamed by oil that represent the Holy Spirit. And so who's there on the throne next to Jesus or next to the Father? The Spirit. The seven torches is a is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So you've got God the Father you get God, the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to get to Jesus in chapter, in chapter 5. And what's the last thing that we see there? A crystal sea of glass. This moat type thing, if you will. And John really doesn't know how to explain it because he goes, it's, it's as it were a sea of glass. Now, Ezekiel and Moses got to see the sea of glass. John is seeing it from this perspective where he's looking out at it and he sees it from like us looking down. Listen how Ezekiel sees it. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So is it above the throne or is it below the throne? Yes. I haven't been there, so I can't tell you. But John sees it. It's above their heads, Ezekiel sees it. Now, when Moses and the elders in Exodus 24 go up on the mountain, then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. What do they see? it? They see it looking up, the sea of glass. So let me ask you again. Is anybody just going to walk into the, and barge into the presence of God? 
Let me give you a quote from A.W. Tozer. And I love the way he always speaks with authority. I can say, safely say on the authority of all that's revealed in the Word of God to any man or woman on this earth who's bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. This is all worship. Now, who do we come to next? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature... Um, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And all day long, all day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So now you've got the closest to the throne, who do you have? These four living creatures. The highest order of creation. Why are they four? Again, four is a number that represents creation. And there's four different... um, Descriptions of these living creatures. The lion represents nobility. The ox, strength. The man, intelligence. The eagle, swift obedience. What did Isaiah saw, see when he was in the temple? Isaiah 6, 2-3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now why are they, why are they all full of eyes? Their eyes are fixed upon the throne. These four living creatures' ultimate purpose in life is to fly and look at God and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they do that day and night. Unending praise to the holy God on the throne. Now, here's where we start to see the worship in Revelation. There are five hymns in chapters 4 and 5. And this is the first one, and it's to God the Father who's on the throne. Now, you'll know these are hymns because they're kind of bracketed in your translations. Hopefully, it's like poetry. They're maybe like centered. So here's the first hymn that they sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What do they focus on first in this hymn? They focus on God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Secondly, power, the Lord God Almighty. I'll, I'll give you, I won't, for the sake of time, these, these secondary um, supporting scriptures, you guys can just read those on your own. Um, and then et- eternality, the one who was and is and is to come. So, um, power, holiness, eternality, the God who was and is and is to come. But notice what happens. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So what do they do? Worship is focused on the posture of the heart and the body. What do they do? They fall down and they worship God, and they cast their crowns before Him. And now we come to the second hymn. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed. The second hymn, it's corporate worship. 
Nowhere in heaven, nowhere are these scenes in heaven do we see somebody over in a corner praising God by themselves. It's all corporate worship where they all fall down together. Secondly, it's for God who is worthy, and then God is creator. God is the cause, the creator, the sovereign, who by the sheer power of his word called things into being that were not before he created out of nothing. Now, let me just talk to you about hymnology here in Revelation. When we look at the songs and the hymns and the worship in Revelation, there's three major themes that you'll see all throughout Revelation. Creation, salvation, and judgment. Now, when we sing songs in church, do we sing songs about creation? Yes. Do we sing songs about salvation? Yes. But do we sing songs about judgment? No. (laughs) It's not very seeker-sensitive or or very user-friendly, is it? But what I want us to think about, guys, is this. If this is how worship is happening in heaven, don't you think we would do good to try to imitate it down here? Because you probably couldn't go wrong. So let me just ask you a question. When we gather for corporate worship, should there be this idea that we are worshiping a holy, transcendent, almighty God who's on His throne? Should we be worshiping God as sovereign creator of all things? Yes. And as we go into chapter 5, we will see that... Well, here's the issue. When you get to the end of chapter 4, you almost, think, you almost say this at the end of chapter 4. How can we possibly approach this awesome, holy, and powerful God as sinful creatures who have rebelled against Him? The answer is we cannot. That's where chapter 5 comes into play. So let's move into chapter 5. Behold the Lamb. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now, what's the significance of the scroll? This is the first time we see the scroll. What is the scroll? You could possibly call it the scroll of destiny. Who's holding the scroll? God the Father is holding the scroll. Where is he holding it? In his right hand. So the scroll here, guys, is an an image for God's ultimate sovereign plan to bring about redemption and judgment on the earth. It's His ultimate sovereign plan. It's in His right hand. Who's going to come pride out of God's hand? And then John says, nobody. Nobody came to do that. And what's it sealed with? Seven seals, unbreakable seals, meaning that... God's plan for eternity, God's plan for the universe is in His right hand. It's His sovereign plan. Nobody's just going to come and bust it out of God's hand. And so John begins to weep. Who in the universe is going to step forward and do this? Nobody can do this. We're all sinful. We can't come and take this out of, out of, out of the hand of God. But then the elder says what? Don't weep. There's a lion. Now, this is where Revelation gets funky. John says, there's a lion. And what does John turn around and see? 
you'd expect him to see a lion. But what does he see? A lamb. So is Jesus a lion or a lamb? Yes. Which one is he? Yes. What does a lion represent? Power, authority, kingly, majesty, sovereign. What does a lamb represent? Death, sacrifice, our, our propitiation. So you've got this mixing of metaphor here where you turn around and Jesus is there and why is he standing? Why is he standing? Because the lamb has been... Whoops, I'm getting ahead of myself. The lamb has been resurrected. He's standing because he's alive. He's not slaughtered and dead. He looks as though he's been slaughtered. So you've got the nail piercings and the, the disfigurement of his, of his body through the cross, but he is resurrected. He's standing. He's got seven horns. Oh, the lamb has been slaughtered. I'm getting, too, I'm getting ahead of myself. The lamb's been slaughtered. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb has all authority. Horns represent authority. That Jesus is endowed with all authority. The seven horns. Matthew 28.18, and Jesus said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now what I want to show you in, in the next thing, I want to, I'm probably going to have to draw this. So those of you that are listening online can just visualize what I'm drawing here. But you can think of concentric circles. Okay, so think of concentric circles of exuberant praise. So if we're to draw the throne, okay, so here's the throne. And who's God the Father's in the middle of the throne? We can't see him, but all this brilliant stuff is emanating out of him. Who's right next to the Father? Who's the closest to the Father? Jesus, the Lamb. He's equal with the Father, but he's different. Jesus is equal with the Father, but he's a different person. Thus, the Trinity. Now, who's around the throne? You got the four living creatures. So you got the four living creatures. Who's who's the first? Who, what's the first concentric circle? Twenty-four elders. Then you got another concentric circle that we'll look at, and then we got another concentric circle. And so, what you see here in the end of chapter five is. It starts with the throne, and it's going to spread out to the most exuberant eruption of praise in the entire universe. So let's see this unfold, okay? Let's look at verse 7. And Jesus, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy, this is the, the third hymn, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay? Now here's the first inner circle. The first inner circle is the 24 elders. I mean, the, yeah, the, 20, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. That's the first. They're the closest to the throne. And what are they doing? They're falling down and they're worshiping. And what are they singing? They're singing a new song. And what's the new song focused on? It's the third hymn. Parallels Exodus. Three reasons why the Lamb is worthy. Worthy are you. Why? Number one, you were slain. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Number two, His blood has ransomed a people for God. 
third reason why the Lamb is worthy to be praised is that He's made us a kingdom of priests. Now, I want you to notice something about the limited nature of salvation here. Notice what He says in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God out of every tribe, language, people, and nation. Is everybody saved? No. Will there be representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation of people saved? Yes. Okay. How are they saved? Through the blood of the Lamb. Okay. So that's the, the third hymn in this thing. Let's keep moving here because we've got to get done. Now we see the second concentric circles of worshipers in verses 11 and 12. So what, what are they singing about in heaven? The blood of Christ, the slaughtered lamb. What should we be singing about on, on earth? The blood of Jesus. I mean, some of these wimpy praise songs that don't mention blood, wrath, forgiveness, salvation. Are we doing a justice to what is being sung in heaven? And why, what are we going to be singing for eternity in heaven about? The cross. You might as well get practice down here singing it. So let's look at the, um, the, next, the next worshipers. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, here's hymn number four, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What else are they talking about? Jesus being slain. So who's the, what's, the, what's the second concentric circle out here? Yeah, and it's like myriads upon myriads, which is like more than you can count. So a lot. A lot of angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures are the worship leaders. When they start the worship, everybody kind of falls in line, which shows there should be order and worship in our worship from worship leaders. Okay? And what are they? What are the 24 elders singing about? Jesus Christ and His blood. What are the thousands of angels singing about? Jesus Christ and His blood. Now, here's where the cosmic crescendo comes to full, to full effect here, the outer, the outer circle which is the fifth hymn, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, and here's the final hymn, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, notice it's to both, to the Father and to the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So who's out here? Us. All creation. So there's going to come a point in time where the entire cosmos is going to erupt in praise centered upon the two that are on the throne because the lamb has been sacrificed. I don't know about you, but I want to be there. Even if I'm way at the back of the line, it doesn't matter. Now you may think, well, how's everybody going to fit? Is the stadium going to be big enough? Don't worry about the mechanics of it. God's got it all figured out. But do you realize that there's going to come a time in the future where every knee will bow and every tongue confess? That's it right there. The cosmic crescendo of the entire creation, the entire universe, laser focused sharp upon the one who's on the throne, the Holy Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ the Lamb. And what's the whole thing about it? You are worthy. Because God, you're holy. God, your creator. And Jesus, you are our Savior and you are our Lord.
I don't know about you, but we need to probably start practicing that now. Getting ready. All right. We got 15 minutes to talk about chapter 6 and 7. We'll go real quick. We'll go real quick through chapter 6. It's the four horsemen. And let me just kind of give you... The, the first horseman is the white horse. This is where the interpretations get a little um, different. There's four interpretations of who the white horse, horseman is. Four predominant views. One view says the white horse is the Antichrist. I somewhat disagree with that because of the way it's described in the sense that white always represents purity, holiness, and then later on in Revelation, who's riding on a white horse? Jesus. Others say, historically, it was the Parthians who were the persistent enemies of Rome and Iraq, and they rode white horses, and so it's just related to that point in time. Others have said Christ himself. Little different, little problem with that because um, <clears throat> it doesn't quite come out and, and give us enough information to say that it, it was Jesus. It could be. I think probably the best interpretation is the last one. I think it's representative of the gospel going out into a hostile world that doesn't want to hear it. Right now, we are the church militant as opposed to the church triumphant. And what I mean, I don't mean militant in the sense that we're out there fighting people, but is the church triumphant right now in the world? Do people like us? Do people like our message? We are in a culture that we are going out with the white hot gospel of the truth, and what's the culture doing to us? They're opposing us, okay? So these are the, the oppositions that come. So the, the white horse, the gospel's going out. Now, the second horse, the red horse, <clears throat> I think represents religious persecution because it talks about bloodshed, slaughter. I think it's the slaughter of martyrs, that all throughout the world there are going to be Christians that are going to be killed for their faith throughout all generations, especially towards the end. Then there's the black horse, which is, I think, oppression of the rich by the poor, especially... Christian poor, who were the original recipients of the letter. And then the pale horse represents disease or death. The, the Greek word for pale there almost is where we get our word um, jaundiced. It's like a, a jaundiced, greenish, yellowish um, death. Pale death. Okay? But look what happened. When you get to the end of chapter 6, so... so have we already seen what happens in heaven? Have we already gone to heaven? Yes. Has the gospel gone forth? Yes. Now let's get to the end of chapter 6. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We could just end Revelation right there, right? That's the end. That's the final judgment. Is it linear or is it cyclical? Now, people will say, well, this is a different judgment than what happens later. No, it's the same judgment. It's just told and it intensifies in the way that John tells it. Does that sound like the very end right there? Sounds like the end to me. All right, let's go into chapter 7 in 12 minutes. We'll talk about the 144,000. This is where... You have two scenes. This is where my, this is my personal interpretation, okay? So you can disagree. 
I think chapter 7 is talking about the same group of people but from two vantage points. I think we have the earthly vantage point first and then we have the heavenly vantage point second. Okay? So there are two scenes of the same people. 1 through 8 is perspective of the group on earth, while 9 through 17 is the perspective of the same group in heaven. So let's just start chapter 7. We'll see how far we get. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Again, what does four represent? Creation, people, people groups. Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea against the tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then you got the listing of the tribes. So the servants are sealed on their foreheads. Okay. If you are a Christian, you've been sealed. I don't see your seal. You don't see mine. Is there a literal seal on our foreheads? Do you see mine? But am I sealed? It's symbolic. Here's the symbolic of being sealed. When you were sealed, seals protect against tampering. So like when a, when a, when a document was, was rolled up, they'd put a wax and they'd seal it to say if it had been messed with, you know, the seal had been broken. A seal marks ownership and a seal certifies genuine character. What God is saying here is when these angels seal us, what he's saying is that we are the ownership of Christ. We've become Christians. So who are the 144,000? The popular interpretation is that these are ethnic Jews that are saved during the time of the Great Tribulation from every tribe, and it's a literal 144,000 number. I'll tell you why I don't buy that. Number one, here's what I believe it is. I believe it's the symbolic number of the entirety of God's people who have been saved in both the Old and New Testaments and have been saved today. So, in essence, we are part of that 144,000. And let me give you an argument why I think that's so. Okay? Let's get into some math here. Real quick. The number three represents the Trinity. Three is multiplied by four, which represents the number for creation that God has redeemed all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations from the four corners of the earth. So what's three times four? Twelve. Three times four equals twelve, which represents the twelve tribes of Israel and the Old Testament and the twelve apostles in the New. Twelve times twelve with these two groups equals what? 144, 144 is multiplied by 1,000, which is 10 by 10 by 10, which is a perfect cube. Because when you get later on to the temple that's built in Revelation, the end of Revelation, it's a cube. I don't think it's describing an actual structure. I think it's talking about the people of God. But it's a replica of the Holy of Holies. It's the only other perfect cube in the Bible. So I think when you take that number symbolically, when you add up the way it looks, it's, it's a totality of God's people. Why this is not to be interpreted as literally 144,000 Israelites saved at a future time. Okay, let me give you some arguments here of why I don't think so. If you look at that list and you go back, look at that list of the 144, look at the list of the 12 tribes and go back to Genesis and the New Testament, Old Testament and compare the list back there. You will find some weird things. Ephraim and Dan are not on this list. Ephraim and Dan were two of the 12 tribes. We'll get to that in just a moment. Dan, why is Dan omitted? You guys remember thinking about Dan? They were the first tribe to commit apostasy. 
they set up the temple system in the north outside of Jerusalem and had pagan worship up in the north of Israel. They were also the first tribe to go into exile. So Dan is a representation of rebellion. Ephraim were also known as idolaters. They're the ones that set up another golden calf up in Bethel. Okay. Now, do you notice anything weird about the list? Who's first on the list? Judah. Was Judah the firstborn son? Judah was the fourthborn son. So the list is out of order. Why is Judah first? Because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Who is listed on there? <coughs> Joseph and Manasseh. And Don, you got this right. Is there a tribe of Joseph and Manasseh? They're not one of the original 12 tribes. Also, this is the only place in the Bible where we have this particular order. And elsewhere in Scripture, the church is now called the Israel of God. If you look at James 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, Romans 2.29, Galatians 6.16, and Philippians 3.3, 3, we find that the church is talked about as Israel. So don't get caught up on look, taking this literally because if you take it literally, you have some Old Testament problems. Or you're a Jehovah's Witness. How is it to be taken? I think it's a... In other words, who are the 144,000? We are. All Christians from all time periods, it's a symbolic number. This is told from earth because where's the perspective? They were sealed on the earth. Okay, now let's keep going through chapter 7. They're dressed in white robes. Okay, let's keep going here. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Where are they now? They're back up in heaven. They're wearing white robes. They're having palm branches. They're saying salvation belongs to, the, to God. They're, they're up in heaven worshiping. So after this, I looked and I saw a great number that no one could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Is this a different group or is it the same group? I believe it's the same group. It's just told from the heaven's perspective. You've got the earthly perspective, the 144,000. You've got the heavenly perspective, same group of people, just different camera angle. Now, where are these people coming from? Well, the predominant view is that these... Oh, also, too, if you, if you go back to Revelation 14.4, it describes 144,000 as male virgins. Now, does that mean that... Um, there's only, like, male virgins are only going to be in heaven. It's a metaphor for purity. Okay, so it's, again, a symbolic number. Now, what do we do with the idea of these that came out of the great tribulation? Because John says, who are these? In verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are ones coming out of the great tribulation. So here we have the only mention in the entire Bible of the term great tribulation. So here's the question. The predominant view is that these are those who were martyred during the intense time of struggle right before Christ comes back, what we would traditionally think of as the Great Tribulation. Is there such a thing as the Great Tribulation? Or does this represent the tribulation that all Christians in all times and places endure, some especially harder in more close countries? Again, I can't be dogmatic on this. But I would say this, there will be a future great tribulation. But if this is representative for all people at all times that have come out of the great tribulation, 
it's not just a select group of people during the end times. It's all Christians. What did John say at the very beginning of the letter? You're my partner and fellow, fellow in the tribulation. Um, so will there be a great tribulation? Yes. I'll tip my hand. Will Christians go through the great tribulation? Yes. Ooh. Some people don't agree with that. Okay. Let me just, we're going to end. Yes. We could also end Revelation in chapter 7. The final judgment has come. Christians are in heaven with Jesus. But yet again, we see repeated cycles. Do you see the repeated cycles? Okay, judgments come. Right. What was chapter 5? We're in heaven worshiping. Chapter 6, there's judgment. Chapter 7, we're in heaven again worshiping. Well, I mean, are these different times we're doing it or are they just different camera angles of the worship that's going on? And is John telling us things cyclically? Because when you get to chapter 8, you've got the seventh seal. And that's probably where we're going to end tonight because I think your minds are about to be blown. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about in the last three minutes or questions? That was a, that, I apologize for the content, but if you've got to get the revelation, this was, this was like gangbusters tonight, so I apologize. Questions? Yes, Don. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we have to go back to Zechariah. I didn't put that in my, it's in my notes. Let me find out the exact address. How the Holy Spirit's in the throne room? Yeah, the Holy Spirit's there. Let me find it here. Um, hopefully I still have it. I know, he wasn't on my picture. Oh, I, don't, I may not have it in these notes, but if you go back to... Um, the fact that if you go back, where is it? Verse 6 of chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures, okay, so I don't have my drawing up here, but between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw the Lamb. So the Lamb is the closest to God the Father. As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. The seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is there as the third person of the Trinity so that all three persons are there together. And again, if you go back to Zechariah, I think it's Zechariah chapter 7 or 9, um, when it says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord, that's right after the candelabras, the candlesticks in the temple, the, the lampstands. The torches, what fueled the torches? Oil. The oil in the Old Testament is very symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was a metaphor of, of, the, of the torches in the temple that emanated the power and the presence of God. And so that seven torches, that seven spirits, is an illusion taken back from Zechariah interpreted to be the Holy Spirit, who, who is the power, who is the, the glory of, of God. Does, does that answer your question, Don? Yeah, we don't want to leave out the Holy Spirit in the Trinity, in the throne room. Yes. So this throne, when in Hebrews talks about that we become bold mm-hmm. to the throne, is this the same? This is the throne. I think it's the same throne. And, and yet we come so frequently. I mean, yeah. it's just really, does it just kind of get you? That well, there's, it, should, it should give you two responses. Number one, you should be absolutely in awe of the God of this throne. Yeah. But number two... 
we can approach this throne because of Christ. That should give you great confidence. It's, it's, it's a paradox to think that I can get in the very presence of this powerful God. Without Christ, I would be obliterated. The glassy sea would swallow me up. The lightning and thunder would knock me down. The 24 elders would kick me with their crowns. The four living creatures would slap me on the face with their wings. I'm being kind of facetious here. The light would blind me. The voice would, would, would deafen you without a mediator. But with Christ, what does Hebrews say? Let us approach the throne of God with confidence because we have a great high priest. So the only way we can approach this unapproachable God is through Jesus. And so here's the issue. When you get to the very end of Revelation, everybody's going to stand before this throne. If you're without Christ, will you stand? No. As a matter of fact, you'll be thrown into the lake of fire is what the end of Revelation says. Um, so praise God that the lamb has conquered and the lamb has been slaughtered. And there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, that gives us access. So it should humble us in, it should humble us in two ways, that man, God is so holy, but man, God is so approachable through Jesus. I mean, it's, we don't come flippantly. We come, we come in awe, but we also come boldly. It's, it's, a, it's a paradox, but, it's, but it should... If anything, we should not be flippant and we should be grateful and we should be reverent and we should be joyful.